it's a violent sport. At what point does it stop being worth it? You know, that's a question I continuously ask myself, and I continue to work with doctors because as soon as I get the red light from them, it's over, and I have to be okay with that decision. Olympic Channel Podcast. That was three-time Olympic medalist bobslayer Alana Myers-Taylor. I'm Ed Knowles, and this is the official Olympic Channel podcast. We find the best people to talk about the biggest Olympic talking points every single week. If you love the Olympics, subscribe now, wherever you find your podcasts. Olympic Olympic Channel Channel Podcast. So on paper, it seems agonising. One Olympic bronze medal and two silvers. Three Olympic Games and no chance to call yourself a champion. But the story of Alana Myers-Taylor is more complex than that. The bronze felt like a gold in Vancouver 2010. The silver in Sochi was coloured with a deep disappointment. And the odds were so heavily against her in Pyeongchang that second place was, well, a huge achievement. The death of her teammate and mentor, Stephen Holcomb, Injuries and a series of concussions meant that second place in South Korea is even more impressive than first impressions. Now she's 34, and though she would like to make Beijing 2022, the future isn't clear. At the recent World Championships, she crashed, and it was a bad one. I spoke to Alana just before those World Championships. We spoke about concussion, but also about transphobia and Serena Williams. But we started by talking about the Americans' relationship with the bronze medal, the one she took home after the Olympics in 2010. Olympic Channel Podcast. I won a bronze medal. Uh, you couldn't tell me anything. It was like I'd won a gold medal. Um, we went into those games. We were not expected to win at all. Um, I think we were ranked six in the world. We were the second team in the U.S., so we weren't expected to win anything. So to come away with any medal, I was through the moon. I slept with that thing. I took it everywhere I went. <laughs> I went to Wendy's one time, a uh, fast food restaurant at Wendy's, and asked for a Frosty, and they gave it to me for free because I showed them my medal. So I was literally had that thing on me everywhere I went. I even went snowboarding for the first time and took it with me there. So it was... You know, it was the dream of dreams, and I felt like if I never got in a bobsled again, I would die a happy person. <laughs> so how's it? How's it look that bronze medal these days? Is it in? Uh, is it seen better days? Oh, uh, if you can imagine a penny in your wallet right now, take the picture of that penny and just go run it under the tire of a car. That's pretty much <laughs> what my bronze medal looks like. It is well loved, as I like to say. So, four years is a long time, but we're going to skip through that as though it's in a second. And uh, the silver in Sochi, what's your relationship with that medal then? Oh, the silver in Sochi, uh, not as good as my relationship with my bronze medal. Um, In Sochi, I was leading the race for three runs, and then it came down to the fourth run, made a pretty costly mistake. Uh, and and cost me the gold medal. So that medal feels more like uh, I didn't win a gold medal, whereas the bronze medal, like I said, felt like I had won a gold medal. Um, so it was a really tough Olympics. Um, we went through a lot. My sled had broken, shattered into a lot of different pieces. Um, we ended up having to get backup parts from a sled that was in 
on display, uh, <laughs> a display sled. So people were getting in it, uh, you know, probably spilling, spilling alcohol and all this stuff. And we had to basically scrap it for parts so I could even race. So extremely difficult Olympics. Um, and to be that close to winning a gold medal and not come away with it, it took me a while really wild to recover from that but i also believe it it led to my achievements later in the sport and it made me a better pilot in january 2015 uh you actually suffered a concussion obviously i'm sure you suffered concussions before i think you've suffered Mm -hmm. four in total right yeah but nothing in comparison to this one no just take us through what happened that day so we were in a race in Königsee, Germany, a uh, World Cup race. And at this time, I'm having like a w- amazing season. And I think I'd won the first four races of the year at that point. Um, and the track was built a little differently. So every year they reshape the curves based off the ice, based off of the weather conditions. So the curves are slightly different and the track conditions are slightly different. And this year is particularly difficult track um down in the lower portions of the track so uh the first run of the race races are two runs the first run i came down set a track record and went faster on the track than anyone had ever gone Um, my teammate had actually crashed in that first heat so i was hyper hyper aware that you know this is serious and, and this is a particularly tough track this year and I came down for the second heat. Everything was going well. We were going super fast again. Like I said, faster than we had ever gone on this track, faster than any woman had gone on this track before. And I came out of Kreisel, which is a 360-degree curve, and just basically missed a steer. And the steer was equivalent of opening and closing my hands. Like, it was that subtle of a steer. I missed the steer, and all of a sudden, my sled flipped onto the right side, and I hit my head right into the ice on the right side. And then we came through one corner. I was on the ice. My head was on the ice. And the sled whipped back up. Um, We finished the race, actually finished in sixth. But I just remember when we got to the bottom of the track, everything was happening in way too fast of motion. Um, People were talking to me, and I couldn't understand the words that they were saying. And the lights felt super bright, and I just felt like I needed to get out of there. Everything was happening too much. Um... Everything felt slowed down, and I was just so disoriented. And we actually did end up leaving uh, before the award ceremony started. What happens next then is that you start to feel all right, I guess. And, you know, you gradually make a little bit of a recovery. But Mm -hmm. what was the point in which you realized this one was different? This is a more serious concussion. So I started to have really bad sensitivity to light and really bad sensitivity to noise. Um, And we had taken a couple of days and we went through um, the standard testing they do, impact tests and everything like that, and um, missed a couple of days of training. But basically within the next week, I had passed all my tests and they said, okay, you're good to get back in a sled. Um, And I felt okay. uh, But the problem was I didn't know really what condition I was really in. Um, So I continued racing the rest of the season. Um, They kept checking on me, kept giving me tests. I kept passing them, um, which, you know, was surprising uh, knowing that I still had this going on. Actually ended up winning a world championship that year, um, but I knew something still wasn't right. So that summer I went to a a sport concussion doctor called the Carrick Institute um, and worked with them with a week. And then I started feeling good again. Um, that summer, actually, I'd been working at the IOC, uh, been doing finance work, which required me to sit at a desk all day. And sitting at the desk all day and working off a computer, I was just getting really bad headaches. I couldn't sleep well. 
And I knew something was wrong then. So that's when we decided, okay, maybe this is lingering symptoms from the concussion. So um, went and got treatment, felt good again, and then tried to get back in my sled that fall. Um, was sliding, everything was going okay. But then emotionally, I just started having the craziest symptoms. I'm normally a pretty calm person, uh, normally life of the party, but I was just freaking out on my coaches for no reason. Um, was still having some headaches and things like that, but I didn't put two and two together that it was concussion symptoms. Um, and then finally, um, I was racing in a race in Allenburg, Germany, and there's another 360 degree cryzo, what we call it. And I blacked out in the middle curve. And given that and my symptoms with the emotional issues, um, it was anxiety and it was just like freaking out and yelling at people for no reason, which is something I never do. Um, the coaches finally decided to send me home and they sent me home for a solid month to get treatment on the concussion and, and then hopefully come back to bobsled. I mean, you, you said elsewhere in another interview that bobsleigh is, it's a, it's a violent sport. Mm-hmm. Like part of the allure when I watch it is because it's super fast and it's super dangerous, mm-hmm. but the consequences are are real. You know, you, you people have died and you've, you were lucky not to that day. Yep. Uh, you know, it's like 90 miles per hour. It's, at what point does it stop being worth it? You know, that's a question I continuously ask myself, um, and I continue to work with doctors to this day to just make sure things are okay. Um, and I've been assured that I'm healthy, I'm, I'm good to compete, and as long as I want to keep competing and as long as I can healthily do so, then I'm able to compete. Um, and, and that's the thing. It's always in the back of my mind, um, but at the end of the day, as long as my doctors feel that I'm in good space to compete, then I, I would like to compete because I still have a passion for it. But that's the thing is I have to constantly check in with them. There's not a, a year that goes by or a month that goes by that I'm not checking in with my doctors to make sure this is still okay. Because as soon as I get the red light from them, it's over. And I have to be okay with that decision. And, you know, hopefully I don't get that red light. Hopefully I can retire when I choose to. But you never know with this sport. Unfortunately for me, I'm what you call a crash pilot. I tend to crash a little bit more than most pilots. Uh, I tend to figure out things more from a crash than I do from just a run that was okay. So I crash my fair share of times. Um, trying to stop that, though. I don't like to crash. <laughs> but even when you don't crash, uh, you take a lot of hits to the head, just the way the corners are shaped and the transitions between there. So um, for me, it's about those constant check-ins and having a really good support staff and a really good team of doctors behind me. And fortunately, I have that. So right now, we're still in a good position um, where I feel comfortable and I feel safe to compete. Physically, it sounds like then you've recovered from that. But mentally does that kind of scar you a bit are you does it start creeping into the concerns and doubts things that you don't want creeping in when you want to be very decisive uh do those things start creeping in then yes it definitely does Uh, but that's the biggest change i've had to make when i'm not feeling comfortable when i'm not feeling when i'm having too much doubt or anything like that i can't get in my sled Um, Whereas before, you always have doubts as a pilot, more so doubts that whether or not you can accomplish a task, whether or not you really understand what this curve is doing. Uh, But now it's turned into, if I have doubts about my safety or my health, if I have any gut feeling, I don't get in the sled. And so what's translated into is, you know, there's some weeks 
um, where we'll go through training. And, you know, normally drivers are allowed six runs on a track before a race, at least. Um, there's some weeks where I only take two runs and there's some weeks where I'll take four. Uh, my volume is definitely much less. And it's because of that. If I have any gut feeling, any fear, anything like that, uh, that I'm not going to be able to do this successfully this day, then I just don't get in the sled. And that's how we've managed to adjust. Um, and it seems a little weird, but I think that's kind of normal um, with my experience with concussions. Normal to have that little bit of worry, that little bit of doubt. And it's something that we continuously work through. I think it's quite brave that you've recognized that it's a problem. You know, like some people would be like, no, 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 I'm fine. You know, like just confronting it kind of or trying pretending to themselves. But deep down, it wasn't quite sorted. I think it's brave to say, no, I, I actually do have that self-doubt and uh, and I'm working on trying to change it. Yeah, as an athlete, you never want to admit you have any self-doubt, right? <laughs> you always want to be like, oh, I'm the baddest mother sucker out there in the planet like i'm gonna go out and and rock this every single day and you never want to show your competitors any sign of weakness and i think it was important for me to admit to myself first um so i could really make sure i had the team around me necessary to take care of myself um because if i wasn't able to admit to myself that i had these doubts i wouldn't be able to have those conversations with my coaches say hey i'm having an off day i'm not training today or hey um maybe we should relook at the schedule because it's not going to work out for what I'm feeling right now. Um, and, and fortunately, because I'm able to admit that myself, I'm able to have those conversations and it, and it's important. And it's what I think is actually allowing me to continue sliding to this day is being able to have those conversations and open discussions. There's also, I read that there's a lack of evidence concerning specifically female concussions why is this important to gather this evidence and why do you feel so strongly about the the lack of evidence in female concussions? You know, um, I've decided to donate my brain uh, once I pass away, which hopefully isn't for a very long time, uh, to the Concussion Legacy Foundation and their group who um, studies uh, CTE and the effects of concussions over the long term. And the reason I've decided to do that is because women are more likely to suffer concussions and um, just because, you know, biologically there's differences between men and women um, that make us more susceptible. And like you said, they're very underrepresented as far as research goes. Most of the research we have are on male athletes. So it's very important to me um, to be able to speak about these things and to be able to recognize, you know, this is a problem among the female population, too. And it's important to continue to get more data and, and more information out there. And I think, you know, believe it or not, <laughs> I think a lot of women have this tendency, a lot of female athletes, as I've seen, is try to tough it out, you know, because I think we get a societal um, stigma all the time that we're weaker and that and that we're, we're the weaker sex. And so we always are into this pressure that we feel like we have to tough everything out. And I think a lot of women end up toughing out concussion symptoms and concussions uh, because they just don't want to show weakness in that regard they don't want to live up to a stereotype of of women being weak Um, so we push through things when we shouldn't necessarily olympic channel podcast it took time but alana went on to make a full recovery from concussion number four and qualified for the olympic games in south korea her experience just before the games though was rough her friend and mentor stephen holcomb died He was Olympic champion in 2010 and was the leader of the bobsleigh team. It was now down to Alana to lead, and she found that hard. Then, a training accident just before the Games meant she had to compete 
with a tear in her Achilles tendon. Somehow, despite all this, she put in an epic performance with Lauren Gibbs and finished second. It means everything, you know. After the death of Steve Holcomb, I, I didn't want to get in a sled. So going a whole summer and not being sure if I even wanted to come back to the sport, you know, to be able to do this and to have his legacy live on, uh, it's the least we could do, and I'm honored. Does it, does it feel like a very different silver to the one in Sochi? Definitely a very different silver. I'm proud of this medal. I'm going to get on the podium tomorrow, and we're going to wear it with pride. Fast forward now to the World Championships this year, and Myers Taylor hadn't been off the podium at the World Championships in five years. More of the same was expected with her new partner, Lake Quaza. It didn't work out. Watch out, watch out! Oh, she's gone! Late, late, late down the Gold Rush Trail and 50-50 claims its first victim of the day. Late Quaza is out, Alana is up on her feet. So that is the key thing, but John... She's seen that picture before. Yeah. Hope they're both okay. Four days later, she tweeted, I've got bad concussion and a possible hairline fracture in my arm. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm a fighter. Maybe she will return to competition after concussion number five. Maybe she won't. But whatever route she chooses after competing stops, she's already shown to be a leader. Alana is the president of the Women's Sports Foundation. So before the big crash, we spoke about what she hopes to achieve in this new role. Olympic Channel Podcast. As a president, um, I have a couple of different agenda items this year. Um, the first one is really working to increase our athlete membership, which uh, we want to include male athlete allies, um, those male athletes who are really helping uh, to push the way forward for women in sports. Um, you know, I, I don't think those male athletes get a lot of attention. Um, so we want to make sure they're included in our fold and also transgendered athletes. Um, I think we're seeing more and more transgender athletes able to come out of the shadows and able to find their place in sport. And we want to make sure they have a home and a place to do it. For us, it really starts at the, the youngest levels. And in the U.S., there's still so many, so many um women and children who don't have access to sport, particularly minorities. And, and we're working on a large scale um, to really try and give them more opportunities. And then finally, um, with all the scandals that we've had, unfortunately, in the U.S. with the USA Gymnastics and, and swimming and diving and stuff, we really want to provide a platform to help athletes find their voice and help them in those times of need. Um, serve as an advocacy agency in a way uh, to try and help them find ways to get help. You know, we're not lawyers, we're not anything like that, but we definitely want to make sure they know where to go to get that kind of help because, you know, no athlete should feel unsafe in order to do the sport they love and in order to go after an Olympic dream and to have those things happen, um, it's, it's very, very tragic and we want to do whatever we can to help those athletes. The tennis player Martina Navratilova um, she was accused of being transphobic um, after asserting that transgender women, even if they've undergone the hormone treatment, um, may still have an unfair advantage over other female competitors. What did you make specifically about Martina's comments? You know, I think the biggest thing, whenever we're considering uh, where transgendered athletes fit into the whole realm of athletic sport, is that there's not a lot of research 
Um, there's not a lot of conclusive research about what the different levels of testosterone and what the different levels of estrogen and whatnot have um, in regards to athletic performance. And that will remember that these are people. These are people who want to engage in sport, and they shouldn't be limited um, based off of their gender and or, or their chosen gender. Um, we really need to make a pathway for all people to be, to participate in sport. That's what it's really about. There's so many benefits. And if we're limiting people based off of their gender, you know, that's a real problem. Um, as far as Martina Navratilova's comments, you know, um, I think it's concerning because we do have to make ways uh, for people to have participation in sports. Um, I do think there needs to be continued research um, about where different genders fit in the spectrum, but we need to work to make pathways so they can be included, um, especially with the issues that transgendered people tend to have, you know, um, higher rates of depression, higher rates of suicide, and, and all these types of things. Sport is a great pathway to help with some of those issues, and, you know, it's very important that we don't limit those benefits to that group of people as well. I've spoken privately to some people, you know, in and in and around and involved uh, around this issue in particular. And when you actually speak and sit down with somebody, it's just it, it's it's always very um, overwhelming for me mm -hmm. because it's it, it's such a human level problem. Right. You know, you can talk about hormone levels and you can talk about you know, meaningful competition and how those two things interact in a very clinical way. And I think it should be. That's 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 good. But right. when you sit down with the person who's being affected by this, it has a very human impact. And right. uh, I, I just wonder how often you think that the human em impact of these decisions gets forgotten. I think it's forgotten a lot, um, and I think that's part of the problem. I think there's concerns on both sides, obviously for the transgender population and obviously for um, the women who feel that they have a disadvantage um, competing against uh, some of the transgendered athletes. I think there's a lot of complexity behind this issue, and, and all things have to be taken into consideration. But I think it's important to remember what the purpose of sport is. Um, and for me, I believe sport is there to be inclusive. And, you know, having won three Olympic medals, I can tell you that it is not all about the Olympic medals. There is some really great things that come from sport. And winning Olympic medals is cool and everything, but there's a larger picture. And part of that is the inclusive nature of sport. Part of that is being able to get out there and, and represent your country and being able to Move your bodies in ways and appreciate your bodies in all the different ways that it can move and all the different things that it can do. And I believe if we just focus on, um, you know, who's winning the gold medal and, and whether or not somebody has an advantage or, or whatnot because of X, Y, and Z, um, outside of the area of doping, doping is a whole other issue, which I'm sure we could spend days <laughs> about. Um, you know, if we're not looking at what we're really here for and what sport is really supposed to be all about, then we're doing a disservice to everyone, everyone who participates, all genders, all races, everyone. It doesn't get much bigger than a big ad focusing just on women's sport in, in during the Oscars. Mm -hmm. I think that's, yeah. that's pretty, that's pretty big. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think it's, uh, a testament to how seriously 
the public look no one would run an ad in uh, in the oscars if they didn't think it was going to be a success if they didn't think it was going to be popular it's expensive yeah. <laughs> for one and then a multitude of other reasons but mainly it's very pricey um how seriously do you think the public at large are taking women's sport at the moment i think it's getting much more attention and i think it's being taken much more seriously, which is something that I greatly appreciate. Um, you know, the attention given to women athletes now, um, when we've seen so many women doing so many incredible things um, in the U.S., particularly this Winter Olympics, to have the majority of medals won by female athletes. Um, not to say we don't want male athletes winning medals. We want male athletes winning medals. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's just been enormous to see the outpouring of support and the and the outpouring of of people wanting men and women wanting their daughters to look up to us now and, and wanting their daughters to be more like these athletes you see um i think it really helps when you have women like serena williams out there uh, doing what they do and, and and you know getting a lot of attention and a lot of publicity and the other thing um with a lot of these female athletes too is they're in the public eye um they're really great people too you know you're not seeing a lot of scandals and things like that um and so i think it really helps people say hey my daughter can be the greatest athlete in the world but look at the way these women act as well they're also great people and they're also great ambassadors to trying to help pay it forward and, and to help the next girl or female um get into sport as well so i think it's the whole package of the of the female athletes that we've got in the spotlight right now that are really helping pave the way i think one way certainly in away from olympic sport there's you know you scandal after scandal in uh other sports mm -hmm. involving males and then you look at the, the that ad uh and it's just jam-packed of the best, albeit American, mainly athletes in the in the world, mm -hmm. and they're all whiter than white when it comes to their their private lives. There is a disconnect between what's okay for a man to do and what's okay for for a woman to do. And I think that was Serena's kind of point. Like I. I, you know, I slam my tennis racket on the floor and you call me crazy. There's there's a double standard there, basically, isn't there? Yeah, there definitely is a double standard. And um, I think John McEnroe has made quite a few comments about how he's done worse things. <laughs> and, you know, seeing, uh, seeing some, watching some of his tennis matches, is, um, he has done worse things and not been penalized in the same way Serena has. So it, it still is a very big double standard. And, and one I feel like will fight for a long time um you know there's still a lot of countries in the world where women will be persecuted for trying to do sport um so i think we're still in that age where there's a double standard and where women are still expected to look and act a certain way while performing um but at the end of the day i think with serena being outspoken with you know even billy jean king being outspoken and, and women saying hey uh we're not crazy we're just the best in the world allow us to do what we do and enjoy it you know uh, once we have more statements like that i think it's going to continue to push the envelope and we'll continue to you know break down these societal barriers that women have to look and, and act a certain way in order to 
be seen as successful or or order to be praised for their achievements. And I think the biggest way you see is on Twitter. <laughs> you know, women athletes receive way more hate um, for the same exact things a male athlete would do, or even minor offenses um, than a male athlete would. I, I feel like people might think it's easy to pick on female athletes, or, or they just want to find a reason to pick on them. But, you know, we're strong, we're powerful, and, you know, our time is, is definitely coming. Olympic Channel Podcast. Big, big thanks to Alana. And from everyone at the Olympic Channel, we wish you a real speedy recovery. Get well soon. I'm sure Alana would love some messages of support, so make sure to give her a mention if you're tweeting about her story. She is at EAMSlider24 in numbers on Twitter. Last week, we had Ramla Ali, who escaped war in Somalia to become a champion boxer in the UK, all while keeping it a secret from her strict Muslim family. A super inspirational story. Go and have a listen if you haven't already. We had an absolute load of comments about this one, so thank you very much for getting in touch. My favourite was from Nina Bradley on Facebook, who said, This brought tears to my eyes. True inspiration. What a story. True champion. If you want to get in touch, we are at Olympic Channel across all social platforms. I am at Eddie Knowles with an I and an E on Twitter and Instagram. I love to hear from people too. Make sure you keep those five-star reviews rolling in on the podcast app. It sometimes seems like you haven't done it, so just go over there to make sure. Subscribe to us for more every single week. Both of those things help us to go up in the charts. So thank you very, very much if you've done that already. And if not, it would be great to have you along. That is it for now, though. See you soon. Think like an Olympian.